Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Welcome to New Books in Medicine on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Monique Dufour. I'm very excited to welcome my guest today, Todd Myers. Um, when I read his book, The Clinic and Elsewhere, I knew that I wanted to take the time to hear him talk about this really interesting, astonishing, and unique book. Todd is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Wayne State University, where he is also affiliated with the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health Sciences in the School of Medicine. He co-edits the book series Forms of Living at Fordham University Press, and he's associate editor at Somatosphere, the online social studies of science and medicine forum. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about the book. Fantastic. Um, Todd, you were trained as an anthropologist. Um, You did your PhD in anthropology, and you're currently um, in a department of anthropology at Wayne State. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and training as an anthropologist and how and to what extent you see yourself working in that field? Yeah, so, yeah, my training is in anthropology. Um, I actually did this uh, joint PhD in anthropology and public health science at at Johns Hopkins. It was a time where uh, the Mellon Foundation had very generously uh, created this fellowship program for public health folks to be trained in anthropology and vice versa. Um, and so I was part of that program. So I got to spend a lot of time at the public health school at Hopkins. And I still remain, I guess, very sympathetic to the public health project. Um, but my original training was actually not in anthropology or even in social science. But I, was, uh, I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and studied oh. painting. Um, and so that, I guess, sort of 
began a certain sensibility um, towards writing, towards thought. Um, and so it, it's that kind of, I don't know, interdisciplinary space uh, that I'm trying to occupy in my work. So while I call myself a medical anthropologist, I feel like I'm sort of benefiting from moving through these different domains. Um, I, I had another question about um, your relationship to anthropology, as we'll talk about in more detail when we get to the book. Um, you characterize this book in some way as a meditation on the limits of ethnography. Mm-hmm. And ethnography is such a central methodology in anthropology proper, but also it's become something that many scholars across disciplines use um, sometimes they're using it in ways that a trained anthropologist would consider to be amateurish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering um, to what extent um, you would consider yourself still dedicated to the practice of ethnography, having written this book and thought about it in the way that you have? <laughs> uh, very dedicated, uh, but simultaneously very aware of my own limits. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. I should have reframe that in the context of the book as a, a meditation on the limits of my own ability as an ethnographer. <laughs> um, in, I mean, that's in, in some ways that's part of the story. Um, the kind of engagement that I was looking for was already, I mean, by focusing on adolescents, by focusing on adolescents who were abusing opioids. Um, I, you know, I'm already kind of staging this in a way that, you know, the closeness that one can, the proximity that one can sort of establish within as a relationship is already so fraught and, you know, working kind of between this clinical environment of the treatment center and then also trying to participate in some ways in the worlds in which these kids were participating in very, very kind of these varied ways outside the clinic, which of course come to bear on how they engage the clinic. I mean, that as an object is already so limited and prescribed and difficult to get a handle on. So I think even from the outset, I conceived of the project as one in which I was going to use ethnography as a way to work through the problems of proximity and engagement. Um, certainly, you know, by focusing on something is also so amorphous as addiction, something that, you know, on one hand, you know, sort of demands some kind of resolve that it's has this kind of clear set of social moral concerns. And at the same time, you know, how it actually unfolds in an individual's life um, is so different and varied. So even that figure of the addict, and especially I think perhaps the, the adolescent addict, is also sort of a difficult object to work with. So, I mean, just the initial staging of the project was already putting mm-hmm. kind of ethnography as a methodology under scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just kind of, thinking about what a long-term engagement would be. I mean, this, this project was, um, the project for the book was, you know, was several years of, of following. And in the book, I talk about how even that concept of following yes. is so difficult. Um, you know, these moments of absence and return, what does it mean when someone returns and how to repair that relationship or try to figure out what happened in between and, and then also the, the following that happens as, as adolescents move between these different institutional settings, um, all of that kind of came into this frame of ethnography. So even in those moments of absence, it's like how do you reconcile those things? Mm-hmm. You know, how does that actually come to? How does that become a character of of writing? Um, so those are things that I I think I wanted to consider, and in some ways were kind of the result of some previous ethnographic work that I had done. 
So I felt like as I was moving into this project with these adolescents that I was already somehow aware of what ethnography meant, and maybe even particularly in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So you say you followed 12, followed, we'll put quotes around that yeah. word, because um, it's important, right? Uh, yeah. You followed 12 adolescents um, from July of 2005 to May of 2008, and that this was part of your research for your dissertation. Yeah. Um, and this book came out of your dissertation. Um, it doesn't read at all like a dissertation. <laughs> it doesn't, I would never, I, I was surprised to even hear that it, that it was originally one. So um, could you tell us a little bit about how this project looked when it was your dissertation versus how it looks now as a book? Yeah, first of all, when you say 2005 to 2008, it sounds so long ago. <laughs> In fact, actually, I feel like, you know, part of this is becoming like a, a slight re-education by reading the book again and kind of thinking about these problems. Um, you know, as a dissertation project, um, it was, well, I guess I should probably back up a little bit. I and mean, this was the second dissertation project. I, I really abandoned a project early on in Baltimore because it was sort of untenable as a dissertation. I was following um, one family um, in Baltimore from 2002 to 2007, just simply looking at um, the management of illness within this one family. Um, you know, how do people mobilize resources when they're faced with, you know, sort of social and economic insecurities? Um, you know, how, how do individuals deal with um, multiple chronic and acute medical crises? Um, and, you know, so what's, what's the picture of care that emerges out of these relationships? Um, and so I wanted to, to look at the management of illness in this one household and, and really reflect on the concept of, of care, and, but also comorbidity. You know, all of these, this kind of cosmology, this configuration of illnesses that, that run through relationships and really shape the kind of social course of illness within one family. And as I was working with this family, and I've written a few papers about this, and in fact, actually, this is a project that I've just recently returned to. So I've just really had to consider what loss and repair and return have meant uh, for me in relationship to this project. But just as a dissertation project, it was just an absolute disaster. And in fact, actually, my very wise advisors, all of them, independently, as I was trying to split them, trying to convince them all that this would be a really fantastic dissertation project, all pointed to the same thing, which was without an index disorder, without more than one family, you will never be taken seriously. Um, In terms of, you know, uh, of selling this as a, a proper, you know, doctoral project. Um, and also that you'll, you know, never get any NIH fellowships or anything like this. And so, and it was, it was this kind of very difficult moment of truth within my own kind of, um, it really, it made me focus on what kinds of priorities I had in terms of my, my ethnographic, my anthropological research. Um, you know, I was really interested in the concept of patienthood. I was really interested in how institutions, multiple institutions, shape very different pictures of the patient over time. And so I had to, in some ways, um, I had to, in some ways, rethink how to do that project as a proper dissertation project and not just a, what was described you know, by my advisors as a kind of very, very detailed case study. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that brought me to, the, um, to this, um, this, drug, this drug rehabilitation clinic on the, on the west side of, of, of Baltimore. And I sort of very reluctantly 
um, found myself there and was re- kind of looking for the same project, you know, with more people, with adolescents. Um, and so I had to kind of re- I ended up having to rethink the entire project along the lines of addiction and, and, and pharmacotherapy, but the real motivations were still the management of illness in the day-to-day, mm-hmm. these kinds of social relationships that shape that course of illness and ultimately kind of the course of, of, of therapeutics, the career of therapy for individuals across these different settings. So the framework ended up being very much the same, but it was you know, kind of the product of an abandoned re- uh, abandoned dissertation project. Um, so I felt like even in the very beginning of my research, it was it was a lot of um, you know recuperation um, and repair. So so that that started the project off. And then when I got to the the um, residential treatment center, um, you know, I, I had you know I had this interest in in seeing what kind of imaginaries were being. Um, animated in the discussions about these adolescents' lives outside of the clinic. I mean, the, the, the original sort of title for the project was The Clinic Dreaming the Social, because I felt like that was precisely what was happening when I would have discussions with these clinicians, all, you know, you know very smart, very well-intended clinicians who had this picture of social life outside the clinic that was, you know, at worst, a kind of caricature, and best, you know, just singular. And I thought, you know, th- there has to be something at work here that 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 can, I guess, navigate navigate this sort of geographic and conceptual divide between the clinic and its imaginary of the social and the social itself. Um, and I mean, it sounds so rudimentary, even saying it out loud, but mm-hmm. that was sort of the that was sort of the motivation to begin there. Now, of course, the big surprise about the project for me was this relationship between the clinic and the social is much more porous. Uh-huh. In fact, actually, one of the one of the things that I try to draw out in the book is, you know, how clinical reasoning finds its way into the social, and actually, the demands on therapy might even be more, I guess, uh, kind of more literal, more sort of. Um, there might be stronger demands of a therapy outside the clinical environment than even within. Certainly no one in the clinic ever talked about cure in relationship to pharmacotherapy to treat opiate dependence. But in living rooms and kitchens, cure was something that was very much on the table. Mm-hmm. So. That's a great example. Now, so um, – just and just to give us a little bit of a sense, uh, let me well let me tell our listeners first for those of you who have not um, seen the book or who haven't read it yet that it's a very slim book um, with a lot of white space um, <laughs> and, and I love that about it by the, the way. Text is but, aired out. <laughs> and but it's it's not a heavy book. It's short in insofar as it's elegant. Did your dissertation look like this? Uh, probably not the elegant part. Uh-huh. Shortish part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going for. I mean, in part, the motivation for writing a book that is, you know, a hundred and about one hundred and fifty pages, even less than that, um, was I wanted it to be approachable for different audiences. Obviously, and part of that is, and not just different audiences in terms of disciplinary audiences, but um, thinking that this would be a very useful book for undergraduates and for students of ethnography in different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of the motivation. I also think that there's, there's really something to be said for writing an essay, 
Yeah. And this is a very sort of French model. I, I, this is kind of a French model of the book as essay. And this is how I thought it. This is an essay on um, the career of therapeutics. This is an essay on the anthropology of therapy. And it uses the ethnography, the parts of the ethnography to give a picture, including that sort of the limits of those kind of pictures that are able to be formed within ethnography. Um, but it's meant to give this picture that helps us dwell on the essay part of it, the thesis part of it, which is the question of therapeutics. You know, how are success and failure, um, you know, determined? What's the limit of evidence? What does time mean in, you know, in relationship to this kind of therapy? Um, what are the demands made by different social actors on therapeutics? And it's really meant to be a reflection on that. And I, I think that the form that that has taken is a much, it's a very simple form in some ways, but not kind of a simple tism. You know, not just a sort of not giving it, um, not a kind of, not sort of limiting the argument in such a way as to make it easier to take. In fact, actually, I mean, the one criticism of the book is that it, you know, it it has, at the same time as it doesn't try to step over the kind of philosophical grammar that each of these kids use to think about therapy, it does have its own kind of philosophical grammar that it's trying to work through as well. And those moments, I think, where, where things don't quite match up are the difficult parts of the book. And they are very, they, they feel, those are the parts that feel very theoretical, mm-hmm. um, problematically. And the parts that don't feel very theoretical, I think, as you had kind of mentioned earlier, you know, are really, I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of pregnant with meaning, but that meaning is coming through the ethnography as opposed to being imposed by an external set of, 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 of questions or concerns, which of course I have because I'm a human being. I'm trying to think through this, and so I I do impose my concerns. And my I mean, that's that's what one does, even in the best of cases. But so that's that's part of the. I mean, it's a very like you say, it's a very slim volume. In fact, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. I think that that's a good time to just jump right into um, the book itself. And you describe this book as uh, as being something about uh, the career of therapeutics. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that term and how that sort of motivates the, the book as a whole? Yeah. So, so rather than sort of looking at, I mean, one of the things that's talked about so much with, within um, addiction medicine is the, the, career, the, the addict's career of, of drug use. And mm-hmm. I thought rather than focusing, in fact, actually, the book, even though I talk about addiction so much, is not really focused on addiction as no, such. it's not. It's really focused on kind of what are the limits of understanding this particular therapeutic intervention. So it's focused on this by now not very new drug, buprenorphine, um, really two treatment drugs, Suboxone and Subutex, which were both produced by Rick Benkheiser Pharmaceuticals. Um, but this drug to ameliorate both the symptoms of withdrawal, but also to treat through replacement therapy um, dependence on opiates. I wanted to look at um, this drug in clinical trials and then follow that career of therapy past the, um, I guess, the sort of the, the time frame of the clinical trial and kind of look at the sort of afterlife or look at the career of this therapy after the questions about um, effectiveness of the drug and its efficacy sort of begin to transform. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we move from efficacy in terms of the drug within a very narrow framework of a randomized controlled trial and into this question about clinical uh, effectiveness over time, you know, what does that transition actually look like? Mm-hmm. And then what happens if we continue to follow that, that career, that trajectory, even beyond 
the closely monitored environment of residential treatment or even outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. So by following the adolescents, following their relationship to this therapy, even in the absence of treatment, that is to say they decide not to take it anymore or they, you know, no longer feel dependent on opiates, which have, you know, in one of the cases with one of the kids that I followed, I mean, he really was so committed to um, getting off of um, of heroin and oxycodone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, part of his motivation was to go back and to sell heroin and mm-hmm. oxycodone. But, um, but, you know, a real commitment to that idea of weaning himself um, off using um, buprenorphine. And so I wanted to follow these different kinds of trajectories. So as to paint a different picture of what the what the experience of these adolescents was outside the clinic. That is to say, to really kind of puncture that caricature of the adolescent addict, which was not just being, you know, um, not just, not just founded in the clinic, but also was really part of the, the public debates about Mm -hmm. even approving the drug for um, addiction therapy Mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And so that picture of the addict, this sort of this, this new epidemic of, you know, prescription opioids um, within, especially for, for young people who don't have much of a previous career with opioids. um, That was really, that was painted as part of the reason it was the thing that, that motivated social concern, a thing that sort of undergirded social concern. And so I kind of wanted to look how all of these things became rolled in to what we think therapeutics is, mm-hmm. uh, the case of the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how the book is organized? I want the, our listeners to get a sense of the kind of structure of the book as a whole, because that in itself is really part of the what I think is so wonderful about the book. How, how do you would you describe the organization of the book? Well, the first, I mean, the first chapter is really meant to sort of dispense with a long sort of history of buprenorphine mm-hmm. as it's developed as this addiction therapy. Um, Nancy Campbell and Anne Lavelle have written this wonderful sort of history of the development that they published in the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences about the same time that the book came out. So I felt like that wasn't really part of the, the labor of this particular book. This really was an ethnography of Buprenorphine, buprenorphine therapy and not a kind of social history mixed with ethnography. Um, so the very beginning of the book is to show how this drug, this sort of this old thing, this drug, which, you know, and this is also, I, I should probably frame this a little bit in, in terms of the geography of Baltimore as well. Mm-hmm. And this is a drug that was tested and developed um, in the seventies at Bayview hospital at Johns Hopkins on the, mm-hmm. the far side. And so this kind of has, a, it's a Baltimore story at the same time. Um, but here's this drug, which was kind of, frankly, a mediocre drug to treat moderate um, post-operative pain. And it looked like it had some potential uh, to, to be used as a, as, a repla- as, a, as a replacement therapy, something that, you know, as methadone moved, you know, sort of moved out of favor, um, this, you know, mixed agonist-antagonist therapy, you know, could be you know, potentially used in a new way. So the, the beginning of the book is about this sort of new uses for old things. This isn't a story of pharmaceutical discovery. It's really a story of kind of reappropriation. Um, and so that's kind of the initial framework of the book to set this up as here's this opiate that's been around for ages. 
what's the struggle to get it approved for addiction therapy? And then what kinds of claims are made on this drug, of which there were many. In fact, actually, a lot of the, a lot of the public discussion about the viability or the usefulness of this drug as an addiction therapy was about treating adolescents. Adolescents can be treated kids with fairly recent histories of opiate use can be treated with this drug. But in fact, actually, there were no clinical trials to demonstrate this, at least none that over time. And so um, it was really interesting because part of the, the science really had to catch up with the political claims of this drug. And in fact, actually, when the drug was approved, that's when we find these, these large-scale uh, clinical trials for buprenorphine, one of which I followed that was, that was being conducted. It was a multi-sided clinical trial that was being conducted at the, my research site. Um, at, at the Residential Drug Treatment Center. Oh. So began the project by saying, I want to focus on kids who are enrolled in that clinical trial and then follow them to completion of that clinical trial and then continue to follow them as they make their way in the world to really kind of test the effectiveness of this drug. Um, that was the initial framing of the entire project. Mm-hmm. But in fact, actually, the, the kinds of demands that are made on the drug are much more complicated than just whether or not it's effective over time, you know, what's really interesting about it is this play between success and failure mm-hmm. and who's making those kinds of, who's holding to those ideas. Um, and it's not just parents and clinicians and social workers and parole officers. It's the, it's the, the kids themselves who are being treated with it. So I wanted to show kind of that trajectory. So that's sort of the first part of the book. Mm-hmm. And then I moved directly into the, um, into the research setting, which is this um, residential Drug Treatment Center on the west side of, um, of Baltimore, um, which was an old monastery mm-hmm. and uh, an absolutely fascinating place. Um, so loud. <laughs> Such a loud place. I had, I feel right. I followed these kids and would spend time at this, this drug treatment center for three years. I swear I had a headache for three years. It was just a cacophony. And in fact, actually, it was this sort of sensory landscape of the old monastery, these old cells which doubled as treatment rooms and, you know, these study rooms which now are, you know, group therapy rooms and the stairwell which just would echo. You really could follow um, you could follow the activity of the day by just simply following sound <sighs> in the space. Um, and in fact, actually, for a few of the, the young people that I, that I spent a lot of time with, you know, it was, that was profoundly comforting. You know, this idea that there was this this kind of this sound, this sort of what this incredibly loud but white noise that could be latched onto and and help order the environment. For a couple of them, it was just like you know they want they wanted nothing to do with the place. But it was strange how sound worked in this monastery. Um, you know, so yeah, and so that's really the second part of the book mm-hmm. is kind of considering this very peculiar but important geography of the monastery. Um, I call the second chapter monasticism, mm-hmm. not just because they're in there to retrain their bodies and minds, but also because it takes into account that these are that there is a spatial issue, and this is also why the book's called the Clinic and Elsewhere, is, as well, because mm-hmm. it's you know always trying to grapple with these um, these different geographies. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe the best thing, since we're kind of, as you're describing um, the the sort of the ways that you're approaching the chapters, we're going into some detail in the chapters. So sure. why don't we just kind of go go a little further into this chapter on monasticism mm-hmm. then? And so um, could you tell us a little bit about 
um, what you see is the significance of uh, space and time to the overall argument that you're making in the book. Yeah, so I mean, part of that monasticism chapter really begins part of the meditation on um, restriction and precarity in relationship to space. Um, you know, there was this large monastery where a lot of the administrative activities would happen, but also group therapy sessions, etc. And then there was a separate sort of residential center, which was off to not not necessarily a new building, but it was uh, that was built, I think, like late 1960s, early 1970s, um, which was where um, people would stay. And it was also where the cafeteria was, and it was where the um, the main clinic was, uh, where the nurses were. And that's also where um, kids would detox. And so were all of these different kinds of spaces where I would find myself, I would find myself in this sort of group therapy room. I would find myself wandering around, hanging out with the case workers, trying in many ways to manage the monotony of the everyday that the kids were also trying to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, actually, that's something that's so hard to represent yeah. in the ethnography. It's like, you know, how do you actually contend with this the banality of certain moments of this of this experience for them, for you, um, I found myself, especially, and I talk about this in the second chapter, um, really strongly hoping that something would happen during the day that would cause some kind of conflict yeah. or gossip or would just break that, that would just like punctuate that monotony. And there were those moments, there were fights, there were... Lots of rumors, stolen cigarettes, um, people not returning from day trips, you know, gossiping about the caseworkers by the adolescents, you know, the adolescents, you know, just like lots and lots and lots of things that you do to fill the time. And I found myself, I guess, participating in that Uh same filling. Um, But also there were these spaces like the, um, the, the suites in the clinic where, um, kids would detox for a week with buprenorphine, with other drugs, um, and have medical management, etc. Um, but that I never, that I actually never went into. And in fact, actually, it's kind of that it begins this this conversation in the book about restraint and about sort of the limits of. It wasn't that anyone said you're not allowed to go in the rooms where kids are detoxing, but it was more like what's the value of spending time in there. When in fact, you know, kids like the the guy called Jeff in the book, mm-hmm. they're all, you know, pseudonyms, but um, Jeff is describing these different experiences he has of detoxing. He's detoxed three times and, you know, each time is different and he doesn't know what to expect. And, and to just describe that sort of environment of the room just felt like it was some kind of a very strange betrayal of a certain intimacy, which uh. went completely, it was, it was, it wasn't marked at all. But yet it just, I mean, I think we use, you know, there's something, I guess, called intuition or, you know, that we follow at some point when we do field work. And there was just something about that space that felt restricted in some way. And so it wasn't about producing some kind of objective truth about what the space of detoxification looked like. Uh-huh. But rather, I was much more interested in the ways in which it didn't, wasn't able to be contained within language for Jeff and for others mm-hmm. or how they struggled with it and tripped over language the language of detoxification for them was 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 difficult and that shouldn't be unexpected and you know part of the project is not to add coherence where there isn't any in fact their, their narratives were not coherent about these experiences and so by 
presenting this sort of objective picture of this space in some ways didn't really, I felt that it was moving away from that kind of corporeal space or that kind of troubled narrative space for them. And so that was another way in which I guess space became so important for this. It was places where I chose to go and didn't choose to go, how space was described to me, how it was mutually shared, you know, how it, it was equally precarious, certainly the stairwell in the middle of the monastery. You did not want to get shoved down six flights of stairs. Um, but, you know, trying to move through those geographies was all part of the kind of... Um, so it, 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 there was something that was being shaped in my discussions with these kids that... Um, that had to be attended to. And mm-hmm. so it was framed within this kind of, this idea of monasticism. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, how did, how does this idea of, you know, these, these, this centrality of space and time mm-hmm. affect how you were beginning to understand the formulation of the concept of the patient subject yeah. in your own thinking? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. I mean, in fact, actually what it did was in part kind of helped me to move away from thinking about the patient subject as, purely sort of figured within the event. That is to say, mm-hmm. you know, the patient subject is, is not is not formed in the clinical encounter necessarily, mm-hmm. was not formed every time, you know, someone would go in for their treatment with buprenorphine or for other drugs or other kinds of medical management in which they were being um, participating in, whether it was HIV treatment, whether it was something else. Um, but rather it was... It, this patient subject was something that was formed in these different spaces in times in which you might be looking away, uh, you know, and that's kind of, you know, that's how I, I began to sort of rethink space. I mean, initially a project like this would be a very, would be very simple. If you, if you said, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to sit in these clinical encounters, mm-hmm. kids who come in and put this thing under their tongue, let it dissolve. And then they go on their merry way. And this is how they're being treated with replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. But in fact, actually, those moments were not as didn't seem to have the same weight as trying to manage this other part of this world for them. Um, and even though those sort of lessons of what it meant to be a patient uh, were so important and they did do some kind of self work on them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something else that was going on later in the book. I talk about this as, you know, a different form of patient thinking about patienthood, not as a contest between, you know, the formation of a patient subject and, the sort of objective, that is to say, objectified image of the patient, mm-hmm. you know, through an ideal scenario of therapeutics, that is to say, a body that can be worked on, but rather thinking about this, 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 um, you know, about this figure of thought, about the patient as a category of thought um, that everyone somehow participated in helping to shape. Um, I feel like I'm getting away from your initial question. Oh no, that's <laughs> no, no, that's well. I think <laughs> welcome that, to the book. <laughs> well, I, well, and I think that that concern does weave through the whole book, and yeah. so, and it's one that e- evolves as the book proceeds. Um, in the next chapter, uh, you call it appropriations of care. Yep. This chapter really um, centers on uh, one person, uh, Laura. And um, maybe to, to we haven't really talked a lot about the adolescents that you follow. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about Laura. Um, yeah. What is her story in this chapter, and what? How does she her story fit with this concept of appropriations of care? Well, Laura was definitely somebody who you know, kind of she represented a very different figure of the adolescent addict. I mean, she was from a you know kind of lower middle class family and uh, somebody who 
by all accounts, was really not meant to be in this clinical environment. Somebody who could be in, you know, highly individualized outpatient treatment for opiate addiction. And yet she found herself in this clinic. And she had two parents who were, you know, deeply concerned that she was going to be consumed in some way by this clinical environment. These were not her people. Um, and this is and this is almost a trope that I would hear in these family meetings about whether or not one saw their child belonging there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Laura's story, I mean, she found great comfort in that environment. Um, the kind of attention that she received, all very positive in terms of, you know, the friendships that she would develop in terms of her relationship to residential staff. Um, it was almost kind of her lack of commonality, both socioeconomically, in terms of race, ethnicity, a lot of different things, where she lived, um, where her parents lived, um, that that sort of lack of commonality actually created an interesting space where care was made possible for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was somebody who would continually come back to that space. I mean, I think this is also, in, in following these adolescents who would move between different clinical and non-clinical institutional environments, who would find themselves in different situations that were you know, where things were performed under the sign of care, but it wasn't care as such. It wasn't this sort of, you know, it was, it, it was very much about managing them. Mm-hmm. Um, she really saw this environment as one that was caring for her, mm-hmm. you know, much to the, you know, dismay of her two parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was a very peculiar, I mean, she was a peculiar kid. I mean, she loved being in therapy and she hated when she left. And in mm-hmm. fact, actually, she would relapse just to come back. Oh. And then, you know, and there was another young woman that I followed as well, who would do something very similar. But she, in fact, actually had a mother who was abusing opiates as well. There were lots of kids who depended on this young woman to take care of them, and she would actually relapse or use to get sent through the juvenile justice system um, into residential um, drug treatment precisely to kind of escape the demands on her to be a caregiver to her younger siblings and also to her mother and other family members. And so there are these kind of different pictures of care that emerge. Mm -hmm. And part of the appropriation part of that is, is that, you know, Laura's story, there's a kind of this negative aspect to what care looked like from, to her from the outside. That is to say Mm -hmm. the values that went into thinking about care for her could very easily be seen as this is self-destructive She's using to be to find herself in this environment to participate in therapy, and she, you know, really we need really need to be thinking of her in terms of turning towards you know um, um, treatment without dependence and all these different things. And yet, for her, care was valued very like it was was it was so that that form of care which could would be valued as like so negative for her was so positive. And it was, and I think that's part of the appropriation, the way in which she took care of, not just self-care, not in this sort of Foucauldian sense where it's, you know, about self-management, but also concealment and confession mm-hmm. and thinking of oneself in relationship to power, et cetera. But for her, this idea of care was something hugely individualized and, and ran counter to ideas of care held by the social workers, mm-hmm. the residential staff, mm-hmm. her parents, um, the clinicians there. And so that's really what I'm trying to get at with that chapter that, you know, here care becomes appropriated, you know, and it has this other valence and, you know, and it's hugely individualized. And can we, and ultimately that chapter asks, can we really call this care? Yes. You know, is it a form of self-care? Sure. Okay. 
but what does that really tell us about the the nature of care itself? Yeah. Um, or there, or is there a different kind of grammar or a different kind of nomenclature which is important to deploy to describe what she's doing? Mm-hmm. Um, that, but it's impossible to get it's it, it's, it's impossible to get out of that sort of question of value. Yes. Um, so that's why I was very insistent on calling it care in this case because for her it was valued very positively. Mm-hmm. This seems to connect to a key set of concepts we haven't talked about yet, but that runs through the book. And that is the um, relationship between the concept of cure and the concept of healing. Yeah. Um, And as you were talking, I was thinking I was clearly seeing the connection to those those two ideas. Could you talk a little bit about that, you know, um, where that idea comes from and how that might connect to the book as a whole? Sure. And that's something that, I mean, really was drawing from. I guess, work that I was doing in the philosophy of medicines, particularly around the, the writings of, of Georges Canguiem, mm-hmm. the French philosopher-physician who talks about this, this kind of p- problem with the idea of cure, as cure is a return to a previous state, mm-hmm. as opposed to healing, which is this, this idea that one arrives at new norms of the body, sort of individualized norms, and is always arriving at these different norms. And, and this, to me, seemed very much along the lines of what was the, I guess, the pharma, the pharmacotherapeutic ideal that people would use these mm-hmm. treatments as a way of healing, that they would arrive at new norms, which whether that meant lack of, you know, a, a sort of a resolve of the dependency to opiates or something else, but rather it wasn't to cure them, but it was really to move towards, um, towards healing. And yet those, the tension between healing and cure, the, the the idea of return and cure, and the idea of a new norm in healing, mm-hmm. was something that was always on the table um, in conversations about what the expectations of these drugs yes. were. Um, and this is where I think it gets into. I mean, the, the the big surprise of the book is that for those actors who were the you know physician researchers who were in charge of the clinical trial, looking at you know, this buprenorphine, naloxone combination drug, uh, suboxone to treat opiate um, addiction, were so aware of its limits in terms of cure. Certainly the residential staff and the uh, physician assistants and social workers who were instrumental in implementing the clinical trial were very aware of its limits as a cure. Um, you know, and in any conversation after the clinical trial in straight up treatment in the, the residential treatment center, there was never this idea of cure as such, but rather this long process mm-hmm. of healing. And yet when I found myself in people's living rooms and in their kitchens, you know, cure was something that was really on their minds. The idea of we take a pill, we're cured, you know, and that was something that was, so it's, it's in some ways there is this clinical reasoning that's taken from the clinic into the social, mm-hmm. but it's, it's refashioned as something else. And it's no surprise to me that, you know, for these pharmacotherapies, that there is this strong demand on cure. And even management gets conflated with cure, which I think is actually quite interesting Mm -hmm. here as well. So part of exploring that tension in the book was not so much to see where people fell out along the spectrum of Uh cure and healing, but Mm -hmm. to see how this was always the tension 
in trying to understand success and failure of this of this mm-hmm. pharmacotherapy. Yeah, yeah. And, and how they align with, as you put it earlier, how they align with and reveal values around Precisely. the care experience. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, I just I just found that just reverberating throughout throughout the whole book. Um, I want to turn to um, the chapter on patienthood. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering because this is probably the most theoretical yeah. chapter or the most abstract chapter. And but it still has a story, and it's highly readable. Could you talk a little bit and explain the idea of the patient as a category of thought? Yeah, this is. Yeah, this is definitely the chapter where things. This is the chapter where I read this years, a couple years later, and think, "Oh man." Um, The the tension that I'm trying to work with in this chapter is rather than, I guess I should back up a little bit. Okay. I mean, part of the idea that went into this this chapter was to see how, and this was the this was kind of the original idea of the dissertation project and the original idea of the research project, which was to to see how people take up these these diagnostic categories Mm -hmm. and live them. That is to say. You know this this category of the patient addict. Like, what does that mean to take up that diagnostic category? That category, which at once is found in the DSM, but not really. You know, certainly the you know the the designation of dependency and, and addiction. We find those things in the DSM, but there is this figure of the patient addict that is taken up in different ways. And I was interested in not so much trying to understand that as a kind of reclaiming by these adolescents or kind of refashioning of that designation by them simply as a way to contrast the objectification of the patient in the clinic in this sort of gross, you know, this really kind of uh, a very simplistic um, binary of, you know, the, 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 the monolith of biomedicine and the way in which it imagines it imagines um, patients and then patients as having both, you know, some kind of agency and simultaneously having that agency always trying to stripped away from them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see that what was, what was being created in a different space. And it's this category of thought. It's this idea about the patient addict that each of these actors in different forms have some, has some investment in. And so I didn't want to just simply focus on this tension between patients and doctors or, you know, biomedicine and, I don't know, the social, something mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. but, but rather to say, what is this kind of mutual investment? What, is this, what, is, what animates thought about the patient addict mm-hmm. that's so important here that tells us something beyond just the subjectification or the objectification of, of medical experience? Mm-hmm. You know, what is this thing, this container that's being carried through these different environments? Because it certainly was. Um, and so that's kind of the motivation behind writing the chapter and you could see like with this this guy this young guy jeff who Mm -hmm. you know i was probably closest to Mm -hmm. just because the amount of time that i spent with him who was also probably the most uh aggressively caustic at our like you know i mean he would just he would perform annoyance all the time about (laughs) having to having to talk with me which of course you know he didn't have to talk to me at all but um he was somebody who was really invested in locating this concept of the patient addict mm-hmm. and then like dissolving it in his life, uh-huh. you know, getting away from it, kind of identifying it, having certain characteristics that went into that thing and then moving so far away from it so that it couldn't, you know, it no longer could come to bear on how he saw himself mm-hmm. um, and using buprenorphine 
um, strangely enough, he, he associated with being an addict. I mean, he saw that as, you know, a dependence on a therapy was just as bad for him as dependence on those other drugs. And he wanted nothing to do with all of this. And he really wanted to move back to, um, to selling drugs. And in fact, actually the reason that he found himself in, in treatment in the first place is because he no longer was able to sell drugs. He actually thought it was too dangerous. I mean, he was a smart, smart kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he eventually did get off drugs and then eventually was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, about a year and a half later, um, in Baltimore, um, because he was selling again and, you know, trying to re- kind of reestablish himself, um, you know, in whatever neighborhood sort of drug market that he was participating in. So, you know, but he was somebody who was so invested in this idea of locating, you know, what it what it meant to be an addict and what it meant to be a patient, how those came, things came to rest on one another. Um, and so that's again, that's kind of the motivation behind that chapter is really to think beyond the sort of simple definition of what a patient is, because frankly. I mean, at a certain point, that gets very boring analytically. You know, is it is it are these are these kids addicts or are they patients? Are they some, well? No, they're actually they're, they're they're kind of a third category. There's something else that's happening here that is being created, um, and those designations really, really were powerful in the lives of these kids. Mm-hmm. Well, in that chapter, I think works really well where it is in the book, um, and it leads into your final chapter called Disappearances. Yeah. Um, and in, in this chapter, you tell four very difficult stories about um, four of your uh, of the adolescents that you followed, uh, of their disappearances. Of, and so why do you end the book with, with disappearances? Well, I would say f- three difficult stories and one story that is so confusing. Mm-hmm. You know, the story of Kevin, this yes. kid who actually lived in this neighborhood that... Um, you know, I was also working with this family that I mentioned uh, in the beginning of our conversation who I'd been following for several years and look at the management of illness. He lived in the same neighborhood. And so, I, I mean, I knew this neighborhood fairly well. And so when I went to his house, this is like the, it's the first time I went to his mother's house. Yeah. I visited him somewhere else. I'm looking around and driving and trying desperately to find this house. And and I keep passing this sort of demolition site. Uh-huh. And I would, of course, I don't think anything of it. And then come to find out his house had been torn down and no one knew where his mother was. And his, his, even his parole officer didn't have a new contact address for him or there was some confusion. It was all lots of ambiguity. And so Kevin disappeared. And this is a kid who I had known for years because mm-hmm. he was so institutionally present. Yes. You know, I mean, he had... I mean, he'd been arrested so many times and he'd been treatment, in treatment so many times. And he, I mean, in fact, the thing that defined him was really this, this sort of, um, this really tight lattice of institutional relationships that kind of held him, uh-huh. you know, and then to have him disappear, um, at least disappear for me. And this is, you know, what I say in the book is that, I mean, his disappearance is, I mean, he's nowhere, but nowhere to me because I no longer have contact with him. But what, what does that mean when someone you know, who is so institutionally visible to a fault, right. you know, is able to, in some ways, just be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does that also say about our expectation of continuity in ethnography? Yes. <laughs> just, I should be able to pick up the phone and, you know, call one of the social workers and, you know, find him, but no. Um, and then another young woman, she really just sort of was absorbed into um, – was really absorbed into these institutional environments in a way that she, after, I think I mentioned her a little bit before when I was talking about Laura, but 
she, you know, she had so much, so many obligations outside in her family life that in some ways it was kind of, she allowed herself to be absorbed mm-hmm. um, and really made this kind of full disappearance into the system, um, you know, with, with zero desire or at least perceivable desire to, to want to get out. Um, and in fact, actually, that's when I lost touch with her. Uh, and then, you know, and to see that kind of withdrawal, you know, it was, it was profound and it was so remarkable. Like, I mean, you could, between one encounter and another, you could see the point in which she's decided that she no longer wants to, you know, go in and out of treatment. Mm-hmm. She's, it's a, it's a very strange kind of turning or commitment to those institutional relationships only. Um, and then the other two kids, they died. I mean, one was, mm-hmm. was taken in by a group of, you know, she was very, very young and a boyfriend who was, you know, so sexually abusive um, and was eventually taken in by a group of older women and ended up ODing um, in their house, um, despite the fact that they were, you know, by all accounts, really caring for her as an individual. That is to say that they you know, were taking her out of this horrible domestic situation and giving her a place to live and caring for her, but also with that came, you know, using together and, you know, she just collapsed. Um, and then the last kid in that chapter is Jeff, and he was the one who was mm-hmm. shot and killed. And so the the last chapter, thinking about disappearance, I mean, it really, that question of disappearance is also about presence, and it's also about, you know, how to think about um, the trajectory of these lives, not in this constant future tense. And this is what yes. so, so dominates the conversation yes. of adolescent addiction, which is, yes. you know, well, what does the future hold for them? Are they going to go to college? Are they going to be, are they going to remain dependent? Are they going to become worse users? And in fact, actually, it's these, these moments in the present, which are so difficult to get a handle on. How can we even talk about this future tense? Yes. And I would ask this, you know, I mean, Stupid question. Every time I would meet with the, no, not every time. Obviously, I'm right. not a fool. But, um, but this question about you know how do you see yourself in the future, and just to the ways in which they would represent the future when they would be willing to answer that question. Um, I mean, there were times where it was a future of promise, and other times where that they were that future was futureless. Um, and you know, thinking about what it is about the present moment that was so important and so difficult to even ground experience. Um, that question was really aimed at that 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 difficulty of presence. Mm-hmm. You know how they had to endure it. They were. I think that's one of the. I think that might be the postscript. It is. At, yeah, the enduring presence question and the conclusion. I mean, this is precisely the problem. I mean, how is the present endured? But also, how does it continue to endure over time? Mm-hmm. You know, a sort of series of presents. You know that have to be accounted for. You know, and that's and that was also part of the writing as well. Just trying to not constantly place them in this future tense yes. something um, uh, mode, but rather thinking about what is it about this? What is it about the here and now that's so important for them? And Jeff's dis- descriptions of his detoxification are a perfect example of mm-hmm. this. You know, there was something like the, the uniqueness of presence for him um, in each of those c- scenarios and how one had no, there was no correspondence between them, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he says as much. Um, so, yeah, that's really kind of focusing on that presence at the end, almost as a kind of, you know, me at my most hopeful in the writing. Uh-huh. I think that's a good place to kind of turn to the conclusion because 
um, that idea of presence and also hope is so central to, to the book. Um, I'm going to take a moment. I'd love to just read a few sentences um, from the end of the book. Um, you write that um, success and failure are dangerous claims in relation to drug dependency. Cure one day cannot suffer uncure the next. So why was success so important and meaningful for the individuals with whom I talked, what, but was defined and demonstrated so differently in each case? Perhaps it is too much to accept the idea that the trajectory of a treatment can vary so uncontrollably, never reaching an end. Perhaps it is because the stakes ultimately remain so ambiguous and the terms of success are transformed so radically from one moment to the next. Um, when I was reading this and coming to the end of the book, I was led to, to thinking for a long time, and I'm still thinking about this idea of what is a therapeutics of perhaps? Mm-hmm. It, because I, that's where this book really took me. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about that. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah. No, that makes that makes very good sense as a question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think about how best to address this. It's funny listening to those words because it's making me very aware that I'm a much better writer than public speaker, <laughs> just in terms of clarity. But here, I, yeah, I mean, one of the, I guess one of the things that um, that I tried to remedy in this writing was to move away from, to, to when I would talk about the sort of fragmentary nature of the ethnography, when I would talk about the limits of engagement, personal relationships, time, disappearance and reappearance, return and repair, all of those things, I wanted to demonstrate that that doesn't mean that we don't have some demands of our own on the trajectories of these young people, these interlocutors, these people that we come to know as ethnographers. And um, so that sort of, the idea of perhaps, you know, is pro- it's promising. And to think in terms of a therapeutics of perhaps would cause us also to, in some ways, abandon these, these other sort of aspirations of something like a pharmacotherapy. That is to say, you know, having it do work besides what it's really meant to do. And that's what I think the investment for so many of the families and individuals was. It was this, it wasn't a therapeutics of perhaps it was a therapeutics of, of unending, but changed certainty, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's that kind of contest of certainty with the precarity of everyday life mm-hmm. that they were always wrestling with. And so in some ways as an analytical, I guess as a sort of analytical posture towards therapy, perhaps is perfect. Mm -hmm. And yet, in some ways, it definitely was not the side in which they themselves were operating. And so it's an interesting tension. Um, And it's, and this is almost the, I think you're really speaking to the over, almost the overdetermination of what success meant Mm -hmm. for adolescents like Jeff, like Tanya, you know, like Kevin, Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic question, of course. I'm going to be pondering that one for a while. <laughs> well, I think it also is, is um, one that, that comes out of um, the concept of hope, which is so sure. central to the, the, the thinking that you've been playing with in the book as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, no, go ahead. no, I just wanted to say that, yeah, I mean, this is, this is also the, you know, there's a kind of, 
book, the book really begins with a kind of skepticism. And that's a skepticism on sort of what the motivations and priorities are towards approving this drug, how these trials are developed, how even the public discourse in Baltimore about you know, abuse and diversion is countered with all of this promise, both kind of these rhetorical strategies for and against. Um, and it, but the book definitely moves, I mean, you know, rethinking it, rereading it with some distance, but to see the way in which that skepticism, that skepticism begins to lighten. And in fact, actually, in the sort of full light of the encounters with these young people over time, it isn't really a skepticism so much as a kind of, um, you know, it, as a kind of uh, a kind of re- like a refounding of who what we think of therapeutics to be altogether. Mm-hmm. You know, so it begins with this question of you know is this good or bad? Is this you know on the side of right or is this just another kind of you know kind of pharmaceuticalization of everyday life that we know from people like Duman and others? Um, but in fact, actually, there's this complete refounding of therapeutics if, in which they're very much participating in which is in the end. So in, in fact, it is hopeful because it is, it, it's watching that refounding, but even with that hope come these things, which, you know, have very negative consequences, um, like the loss of, of Jeff and Tanya, or like the disappearance of Kevin and, and, um, and, uh, and, and Keisha. So um, anyways, I just wanted to add that because I think that that's, that's also kind of the movement of the story. And I mean, it, it tries to attempt that movement from skepticism to a different kind of hope or mm-hmm. refounding in what, a hundred and some pages, mm-hmm. which is a little bit ambitious, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, that's the kind of maneuvers and strength because the conclusion of the book is not, you know, these drugs are bad. These drugs right. are good. In fact, actually, and this is also thinking through this question of audience for the book. Um, you know, a lot of clinicians who have read this book and talked to me about it, are very thankful that it doesn't have that kind of, first of all, there's no ire for clinicians in this book. Yes. And it's really demonstrating their labor in a very difficult kind of labor. Um, but it's also not a story against a drug or for a drug. Mm-hmm. And in fact, actually, it's that kind of, like, leaving that kind of ambiguity in the story, mm-hmm. I think, is really, it reflects the true amb- ambiguity of this drug in people's lives mm-hmm. um, over time. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's by, it's an opening rather than a limitation, but still it's that opening kind of forces us to say, you know, what do we think success and failure looks like here? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, as we get to the end, you know what question I'm going to ask you, right? Um, how do you imagine your future, Todd? Um, <laughs> what, what I'd like to end by asking, you know, what kind of things you're working on, what kind of questions sure, yeah. you're kind of engaging with now in, in your own writing. You talked at the beginning of our interview about returning to your project. I like to call those Lazarus projects, by yeah. the way. <laughs> we all have them, and I'm glad to yeah. hear that you're you're having it rise up. Um, so what are, what are you working on now? What can we expect from you next? Yeah, so the, sort of the big ethnographic project is this return to working with this family in Baltimore. Um, you know, in the five years that I was gone, um, a lot has happened. Um, losses in the family, et cetera. And the, the project's really focused on comorbid, this idea of comorbidity or really kind of what's the work of time and symptom. Um, and so I'm calling it events out of sequence. And um, it's kind of trying to, through the writing, trying to put the, the temporal, because the woman who had, I had interviewed who was really the head of household dies in the time between. And what does, and, but for the last several years, I've been writing in a way that would imply that she's very much alive and vital. And in fact, actually, 
she was somebody who had always used to think through this kind of threshold of health and illness. Um, and here, you know, she passes. And so it's, it's both repair in terms of relationships going back, re reestablishing those relationships with her grandchildren and, and her children, but also kind of repair and recuperating those past moments of ethnography and how time begins to kind of get distorted. You know, what tense are we actually talking? And so it's, in some ways it extends a lot of the questions that I, you know, raise in the clinic and elsewhere and kind of goes back to this project that, you know, probably for my benefit, I abandoned, um, you know, in Baltimore. And then I'm also finishing the book with um, Stefano Scarlanos, who I edit the book series at Fordham with. We're finishing a book, um, which we're entitling uh, The Brittleness of the Body uh, and the Sciences of the Individual around World War One. And it's a, oh. more of a historical um, uh, book that looks at changes and understandings of bodily regulation and physiology as they emerge through the First World War. So how ideas of homeostasis and other you know, concepts about bodily integration emerge. So it moves between anthropology through people like W.H.R. Rivers and Walter Cannon in physiology but also the neurology of Kurt Goldstein and others. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's another project. And then um, at the end of the year, I have a book that's coming out with um, my colleague, Richard Backstrom um, at university of Edinburgh that we wrote about this film, this 1922 film um, called Haxon or the witch by Benjamin Christensen. Uh-huh. And um, it's a look at, sort of the work of scientific evidence and the beginnings of nonfiction film and, you know, being caught by the witch and, you know, it's sort of moving in this other domain of, of writing, which is trying to understand representation uh-huh. and the history of anthropology. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to keep myself busy and out of trouble. It sounds like you're doing just fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, when any or all of these come out, I look forward to talking with Thanks you so again. Much. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Um, and uh, we look forward to reading your new work. Thanks so much. 